I think one of the most sensible ideas about money was Gazelle's idea that money should depreciate, because he was focusing on money as a means of transactions, a means of payment. And if you have a money system where people are focused upon hoarding, then what you get is a slowdown in the effectiveness of money as a means of payment. I think you all know the story of the town of Wargel in, in Austria during the Great Depression. You're aware of that? Yeah, they had their own currency system. Yeah, and that was a gazellian currency designed to depreciate. The whole idea being if you didn't spend it, what you had, the value of it declined over time because of a stamp script. And that actually meant that town went from depression levels of unemployment to zero unemployment in the middle of the Great Depression until they were stopped in that experiment by the Austrian Central Bank and they went back to the same level of depression as everybody else. And of course, they voted for the Nazis not long too, too long after. So a depreciating currency actually encourages spending. For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been a chance to refine my own investment framework through a series of conversations with extraordinary investors in every corner of the world. In this series, I, along with my co-host Robert Carver and Moritz Siebert, want to continue our education by digging deeper into the minds of some of the thought leaders when it comes to how the world economy and global markets really work to try and learn how they think. We want to understand the experiences that have shaped them, the processes they follow, and the historical events that have influenced them. We also want to ask questions outside our normal rules-based playground. We're not looking for trade ideas or random guesses about an unknown future, but rather knowledge accumulated over the course of decades in the markets to try and make us better informed investors. And we want to share those conversations with you. Our guest today is not one of these stereotype economists, but rather someone who really stands up for what he believes and for decades have been very vocal in his critique of mainstream economics and who have gone on to develop some unorthodox ways of modeling money. So I'm absolutely convinced that you will have your eyes open from our conversation today with Professor Steve Keen, where we did have some audio challenges, but I hope they won't distract you from the important topics discussed. Steve, thanks so much for joining us today for a conversation as part of our series into the world of global macro, where we relax our usual systematic or rules-based framework to provide you with a broader context as to where we are in a global and historical framework, and perhaps discover some of the trends that may occur in the global markets in the next few months or even years, and ultimately how this will impact all of us as investors and how we should best prepare our portfolios. We very much look forward to diving into a few different topics in the next hour or so, not least because you are not one of these stereotype economists, but rather someone who really stand up for what you believe in and have been very vocal in your critique of mainstream economics for decades and who have gone on to develop some unorthodox ways of modeling money. So very excited indeed, Steve. I want to kick off with just a general question, but it's slightly different to what we normally ask because you do reside now in Asia. Most of our guests so far has been based in the U.S., So I'm thinking you might actually have a different perspective. And the perspective I'm looking for is just to sort of see where you think we are in in a big global macro picture, because we hear a lot of these analogies 
being made to previous crises, 1929, the Japanese bubble in the 80s, tech bubble, the great financial crisis, which, of course, you accurately predicted. And then on top of this, we have a global pandemic, which makes it a very unique period in time. So how do you see the world right now and how does this tie in with the predictions you made about this period in time as well? Well, obviously the coronavirus is the overwhelming frame of reference for where we are at the moment. I certainly can't say I expected the, I anticipated the timing of the uh, virus. I did expect the experience because I read Laurie Garrett's book, The Coming Plague, back in 1994. And if anybody hasn't read it, I highly reckon taken looking at that. She said that a pandemic like this was inevitable. We know, of course, the Obama government was planning for partly something of the nature of a pandemic like this. Uh, those plans were trashed by Trump. There's been plenty of knowledge that something like this would come along and unfortunately, fairly negative preparation. It's hit at a time when we are still on the remnants of the impact of the global financial crisis back in 2008. And this is the main point of reference that I have. First of all, the, the crisis itself is a both a demand and a supply shock. And this is the unusual thing for this crisis. It's not an endogenous crisis to the economic system per se. It's a crisis to the impact the economic system has on the planet's ecology, but it's not strictly within the economy itself. And we we have never had a crisis like this before. Every other crisis we've had has been driven by the financial sector itself. I'd recommend taking a look at Richard Vague's recent book, A Brief History of Doom, and he goes through 150 years of crises. There have been roughly 150 crises across major economies over that one and a half centuries. And every last one has been a financial crisis. Now, this is unusual. It's a crisis coming from the real economy, going back to the financial sector. And my fear of this, well, first of all, has been something of the order of a 30% to 40% fall in both demand and supply, courtesy of the crisis. People can't work. People don't have incomes to spend at the same time. Yet they're still carrying the financial burdens from the last crisis when, they say, in America's case, private debt got to be five times what it was at the end of the Second World War, going from roughly 35% of GDP to 170%. In the aftermath of the crisis, we have the potential for a financial breakdown. And that's what really scares me, that our payment system is not able to cope with what's happening courtesy of the, of the virus itself. And globally, we're being divided into two sorts of economies. Those that have managed to eliminate the virus, and that's predominantly China itself, Southeast Asia, maybe New Zealand and Norway, and possibly Australia, and the rest of the world, which is basically lining up for wave after wave of the virus. So I see us having a fragmented globe after the crisis uh, for those countries that can talk about an after. And those that are enduring the crisis, this is going to be the dominant pattern for the next two to three years. So um, a very unhealthy economy. And I think a push away from globalisation back towards localisation as well, because there's no way we can have the long supply chains that have been a feature of the globalised economy. What about you, Rob? What's on your mind this morning? Yeah, it's interesting because I think quite a lot of our other guests have tried to draw parallels between this crisis and other crises. So I really like your your statement that this is completely different. We need to think about it in, in a different way. And what a lot of those other people have said, looking partly at other crises and also looking partly at orthodox economic theory, is to say, well, there's all this 
money being printed by central banks. They're buying up assets. They're doing all of all the things from the 2008 playbook. And uh, this is what these guys say. Inevitably, this is going to lead to sort of massive inflation. I was wondering whether you agreed with them or whether you disagreed. And, and if you disagreed, well, you know, why? Do you disagree with them kind of in a fundamental way or do you disagree with them just because this crisis is unique and special? Unfortunately, I suffered a lot of crackle affecting that question, Rob. So I hope I'm, if I don't send an answer, it re-ask it afterwards. But the reason this is crisis is so different, as I've said, it's coming from the physical side of the economy and hitting the financial. The usual story is a crisis comes from the financial side and hits the physical. That alone is a major reason why this crisis is like no other that's occurred before. That said, it's going to manifest itself in a lot of financial ways. So if you have people who suddenly lose their jobs and therefore can't pay their rent or can't pay their mortgage, and that'll play through the financial sector with landlords who currently can't service their debts. And then you have a banking sector that can fail. So I see the causation as being reversed, but many of the manifestations will be similar in the sense that there'll be bankruptcies coming out of this and a potential banking crises that the Federal Reserve will dive in and try to rescue. But fundamentally, the analogy that I give to try to point out why this is different is to use one of the Marx's great insights and saying there are two major circuits in capitalism. There's what he calls the CMC circuit, commodity, money, commodity. And say from that particular circuit, people have got a commodity that they don't can't really use. They work with the work. They then sell that uh, commodity to, to use the money they get from, from labouring that commodity to buy other commodities. And there's no attempt to make a, a surplus out of that. That's pretty much the consumption cycle. And it's mainly workers who are doing it, and that's about 70% of aggregate demand. The one which causes crises is what Marx called MCM+. Plus. You have money, use it to buy other commodities and manufacturing process, and you then try to make more money after it, MCM+. Plus. That's pretty much the circuit of investment, and that's about 30% of the economy. Now, most of our crises come out of a breakdown of the MCM+, Plus circuit. So you have a plunge in very volatile part of the economy, which accounts for about 30% of total demand. This time round, because it hit the capacity of workers to work, capacity of small businesses to function and so on, it's actually more in the CMC circuit. And that's about 70% of the economy. So the side that's being hit is much, much bigger than the side that normally brings the economy unstuck. And that's why I think this is a very different crisis to any we've had beforehand. I hope that was an answer to your question. I'm not really sure. It wasn't. Don't get me wrong. It was very interesting. The question was specifically about the outlook for inflation, given what central banks are doing. Inflation. Okay. Yeah. I expect deflation. Yeah, that's one reason my, de- my website is called uh, debtdeflation.com. Not that I'm actually active there anymore. I've expected deflation you know, right from the very beginning of the, the 87 crisis when I first started modelling financial instability because we have an excessive level of private debt and the best explanation of what happens with private debt being excessive was given by Irving Fisher in the debt deflation theory of great depressions. He says if you have too much debt and too low a level of price change at the beginning, then firms will try to lower their prices to attract customers in through their doors rather than their rivals. And when they cut those prices, the impact is to actually cut GDP as well. So you're, you're dropping prices you're dropping the price level at the same time, you might pay your nominal debt down, but your actual debt ratio can rise. And that's what happened 
in the early periods of the Great Depression. Even though we had a rising level of private debt to GDP from 30 to 32, that was matched with a falling level of private debt. So private debt was falling, but nominal GDP was falling even faster. The effect of real demand and a fall in the price level. And I expect a similar phenomenon this time round, which is one reason why I want as much government money creation as possible right now to stop that happening. But is that, Steve, is that consistent, by the way, with your view that we're going to have more localization of supply chains and not globalization? Because I imagine localization is going to be more expensive if we can't have everything produced by China. Uh, the reversal of globalization might have an impact in the opposite direction on, on the price level, uh, but not a lot of one. I think people, the main thing it's going to cause is a need to invest domestically. If you think about, if you're going to try to move your supply chain back from China to America, you've got to build factories. You've got to invest. Now, the problem, again, is that if you have a shock like we're getting with the coronavirus, how much are you going to invest? And the answer could be very little to none. I don't think it'll quite come to that, but a lot of goods, the supply chain is going to have to have a two-week to three-week buffer either side of the Pacific Ocean. If you want to send goods from China to America... You've got to have people on that ship. You've got to be sure they don't have the virus when they leave. You can be confident Chinese workers leaving a Chinese port won't have coronavirus. When they dock in America, you can only be confident they're going to come back without that disease. You have to quarantine them somehow, either side of the whole thing. The whole supply chain map gets smashed by this, ultimately. And the simple decision is let's just bring production back on shore again because the cost advantages that made it advantageous to relocate production in the first place and no longer there. But if you want to do it at the same time, you haven't got the skilled labour anymore. The skilled labour is now in China. How do you build it domestically? You need people who can operate machine, operate machine tools. Even we're talking computer-controlled machines. So I think it's an enormous disturbance to production systems. And its impact on the price level, I'm not really sure there's going to be much because there's such disruption to aggregate demand overall uh, that I think that that will still dominate the whole trend. And I expect our central banks to get it wrong as well, being staffed by neoclassical economists. So my bias is still to affect deflation, even if there are going to be some impacts coming out of having to go from globalisation to localisation. That's interesting, by the way, Steve, thanks for coming on. It's really great to have you. What's certainly true, I mean, the impact, like you say, has been on the physical side. The markets have had a V-shaped recovery and maybe they're continuing with their V, but the economy, as far as I can see, they don't have that V in them. I live in Germany. When I look at the businesses here, they're supported by the state. We're certainly not producing the same number of cars. When you look at the stock prices of Daimler and BMW, that's not a very nice picture, right? So there is an impact. They have massive rise in unemployment in the United States and around the world. So all of that stuff is demand destruction, and it's very deflationary, and it may lead to insolvencies of businesses. So there is that deflationary pressure, I guess, in the immediate term. But what I, and, and you know, this is certainly above my pay grade, even though I studied economics, but I have no feeling for the level of stimulus that is supplied by central banks around the world, all of them, all of them at the same time, whether that magnitude of the money that is being created and monetized and, you know, this, that, and the other thing, all the stuff that they're doing, that maybe eventually it'll just tip. And I'm saying this because when we look back 
at essentially all the major currencies that have ever existed. And those that have become reserve currencies like the Dutch Gilder and, you know, the British pound and, and now it's the US dollar. And, you know, you, you look back at all those currencies, essentially they all devalue or they stop existing. They all go to shreds and they end up in a hole. So I guess maybe the end game here, and maybe this is not in, you know, one or two years time, it's an inflationary end game because if it's not, who's going to pay back all that debt? I mean, what, what are we going to do? We can then say, okay, let's just forget about it and we'll jubilee it away or we'll, you know, whatever we'll do with it. But if there's no inflation, we're stuck in the hole forever. One of the problems we have about understanding this crisis is understanding money itself. And we are continually getting it wrong. People think, oh, the government's running up all this debt. That must be burdening me, et cetera, et cetera. You would all have heard of modern monetary theory. Of course, these days, there's been various, one of the few heterodox theories that's got through to public discourse. And I have some issues with parts of modern monetary theory, but the fundamental insights about the nature of money and government spending are completely accurate. And that is, the, the, the way that I try to explain it is to start from the idea of equity. You all know the rule assets minus liabilities equals equity. You also know that your asset is somebody else's liability and vice versa. What that means at the aggregate level, certainly if we're working just in terms of strict money, leaving out the value of monetary assets for now, price times the value of shares and price times the value of housing, leaving that out, assets minus liabilities minus equity equals zero is a rule that applies to us all, and it applies in the aggregate. Now, if you have a private banking system where you live in a pure credit economy, the sort of thing that Austrians fantasise about, you know, no government, no um, central bank. For private banks to operate, they have, must have positive equity. A private bank with negative equity is bankrupt. So banks have to have positive equity. Therefore, the non-bank sector in a pure credit economy is necessarily in negative equity, precisely equal to the positive equity of the banking sector. That's our starting point. Now, nobody enjoys being in negative equity. So what do we do? We borrow share, borrow money to buy shares and houses and drive up the prices and we do a notional calculation that says our equity includes the price the last financial asset sold for times our personal share of the stock of outstanding assets. And if we all do that, we can fool ourselves into believing we have positive equity. Okay? But it's actually a notional thing. If we tried to realise those prices all at once, prices would collapse. But that sort of bad behaviour is what actually gave us the roaring 20s and it's what gave us the noughties as well. Now, one thing that actually causes that is governments running surpluses. Because if you then throw a government into the mix, say, let's go from the fantasy of a, a pure credit economy to the reality of the mixed credit and credit world in which we live, the government also is subject to that same rule, that's minor liabilities equals equity. If the government is running a, a deficit, it's driving itself into negative equity. What it's doing, it's spending is exceeding taxation. Where is that money turning up? It's turning up in private bank accounts. So the government running a deficit generates an identical surplus for the private sector. And if it does that sufficiently, then the private sector can be in positive equity because the government sector is in negative equity. Now, can the government finance the negative equity? Well, duh, it can, because, and we're certainly seeing this right now in the UK and some other countries as well, the central bank can finance the treasury directly. So it's quite possible for a government to maintain permanent negative equity. Not a, not a problem, it's actually the, it's a necessary position for the non-government sector to be in positive equity. 
So the idea that government debt is a problem is the problem of understanding what government debt is. And if the, you know, we know what the Federal Reserve can do with its keystrokes, if it decides to cancel that debt, it can cancel, it can buy back all the government debt outstanding tomorrow and it could cancel it the day after. So the worries about the government sector debt are simply not understanding how a monetary system works. The real worry is private debt, and that's what I've been focusing upon, as you'd be well aware, for decades now. We have the highest level of private debt in the history of capitalism. But at the same time, we have this virus crisis. Now, if we let the impact of the decline, the negative, the smash, the smash tick, the cash flows have sub- suffered, hit the private financial system, major parts of that sector will go bankrupt. So that's the real worry, not the government debt. That can be handled. And ironically, one of the best ways to reduce government debt as a percentage of GDP is to run deficits. Because we think about government debt and we worry, we obsess about it. What we're worried about is the ratio compared to GDP. If you think about running a deficit, then that is going to increase the government's debt but it will also increase GDP by precisely as much because the definition of GDP includes government spending minus taxation, G minus T, which is the government deficit. So if you have a government running a deficit, it increases its numerator, the debt level, it increases the denominator by precisely as much. Now that money also turns over. So if you have the money turning over one or two times per year, you increase the numerator by the G minus T you increase the denominator by G minus T plus how often that money turns over in a year. And this is one reason why the government, government the American government's debt level was falling all the way through the 50s and 60s when it was normally running a deficit. So the experience of rising debt levels, rising government debt as a percentage of GDP, is something which coincides both with the collapse of the, financials, the, the financial bubble in 2008 and then the coronavirus experience now where the economy is tanking anyway. But if we obsess about the government debt without thinking about the contribution government debts makes to increasing private equity, we're going to get ourselves caught in the sort of tangles that have led us to this crisis in the first place. The periods of governments running surpluses to try to reduce its own debt level have preceded our major economic crises. Let me put in a, a maybe a really weird thought, and you may say, hey, Moritz, uh, this is real stupid of you to say, but if the government debt is not a problem, the government could go out and say, I'm going to save all those private businesses with government debt, right? Here's the mm-hmm. money. I'm going to yep. bail you out. And once we've bailed you out, I'm going to cancel my government debt. Problem solved. What's wrong yep. with that thinking? Nothing. Okay, so let me chime in with my limited knowledge about all of these things. So let's just say, let's just take the U.S. for as an example. Maybe they're not yeah. a good example because a lot of foreigners own their debt. But let's just say that they start out by buying all of the debt back, all of the bonds. Mm. Okay. Then they cancel it. So all the pension funds, all the insurance companies, they can't buy any U.S. bonds. No, and you, how do you cancel? What you do is you cancel by buying it back with cash. Okay. Right. But my, my, my thought is just this. My thought is just this. Yeah. If there is no debt to buy from these institutional investors, mm. won't they just end up then having to go and buy foreign debt, which then weakens the currency, and then you sh- it, it shows up in the currency? Yeah. I mean, this is, again, this is what you're pointing out is that government debt's a necessary element in for the financial portfolios of the private sector. Well, from a regular point of view, it has been, yeah. So if you want to carry cancel the government debt, 
then you're actually hampering the private sector. What I want to do is use the government's capacity to cancel private debt. You know, about a decade ago, I was arguing in favour of a modern debt jubilee, but I didn't bother developing the argument because I thought it had a you know snowflakes chance in hell of uh, being implemented. Now that the coronavirus has come along, well, welcome to hell, and the snowflake is now necessary, so I might actually finally write it up properly. But the basic idea was we have caused a crisis by letting too much credit money get created, and that credit money predominantly financed asset bubbles rather than genuine investments, which would be the desirable usage of credit in the first place. And so we have to reverse that mistake. And the easy way to do it is for the government to give a per capita injection into household bank accounts, equivalent for every household. So Rivard Murdoch's household, we get the same amount as my, as my household, were I in America. Uh, of course, far more beneficial to the poor than the rich. Then if you're in debt, you pay your debt down. If you're not in debt, you get a cash injection. That cash injection could be limited in such a way that it could only be used to buy corporate shares but those corporate, new corporate shares, newly issued shares, but those newly issued shares must be used to pay down corporate debt. So it'd be a set of accounting operations that basically replaced a large amount of credit-backed money with fiat-backed money and then eliminate the excessive level of private debt we've created and enable the private sector to get back into its usual level of spending, which it used to have back in the 50s and 60s when it wasn't terrified about whether it could manage to pay off its own private sector debt. So that's what I'd like to do, eliminate the private sector debt and rebalance a system which has become far too credit-dominated and not enough fiat-backed money-dominated. Now, part of Morris's point was about all these fiat currencies failed. They have failed over time. They always get replaced by another one. The British got replaced by the American, and obviously the Second World War was the event that led to that replacement. Whether you can say fiat currencies themselves fail in general, they've had fiat currencies for about two, or more than 2,000 years with them for 5,000 years. McPhee is just credit depending on the particular political stage you're looking at what that currency might be. But certainly for the period of capitalism, we've had fiat currencies. We had a try for a while of private bank money back in the 19th century in America and Australia and, and I think New Zealand and parts of Germany as well. All those gave way ultimately to go back to fiat currencies again. Whether they've failed uh, it comes down to an issue of what money is actually for in the first place. And there's an obsession with gold bugs and Bitcoiners and so on about money as a store of value. You know, it's really terrible that it declines over time. I think one of the most sensible ideas about money was Gazelle's idea that money should depreciate because he was focusing upon money as a means of transactions, a means of payment. And if you have a money system where people are focused upon hoarding, then what you get is a slowdown in the effectiveness of money as a means of payment. I think you all know the story of the town of Wargel in, in Austria during the Great Depression. You're aware of that? Yeah, they had their own currency system. Yeah, and that was a gazillion currency designed to depreciate. The whole idea being if you didn't spend it, what you had, the value of it declined over time because of a stamp script. And that actually meant that town went from depression levels of unemployment to zero unemployment in the middle of the Great Depression until they were stopped in that experiment by the Austrian Central Bank and they went back to the same level of depression as everybody else. And, of course, they voted for the Nazis not long too, too long after. So a depreciating currency actually encourages spending. And to that extent, even though inflation wasn't a, wasn't a deliberate policy of the government in the same way that 
depreciation as deliberately built into a gazillion currency had the same impact. And they meant we spent money. And that was a major form of the level of economic dynamism of the 50s and 60s. Now, because we're obsessing about government and money as a store of value, you get the madness of things like Bitcoin, where I haven't kept track of it, but I believe at the moment what the level of Bitcoin transactions per per second is about, what, three? Three Bitcoins per second? Yeah, I mean, com- you know, relative to, to other things, it's it's nothing. Yeah. I mean, if people are trying to fix that by I mean, plastering on the lightning layer on top of it, et cetera, et cetera. I said that it's partly a lipstick on a pig, of, pig uh, syndrome. But the whole thing is because of the obsession about money as a store of value, which is built into the nature of Bitcoin, then what you get is money that doesn't turn over. Now, money that doesn't turn over isn't, isn't money. So I, I think it's let's look more about money as a means of transactions. And in that sense, inflation actually encourages them to some degree. It's when they become crazy levels of inflation, you get a breakdown. But the moderate level of inflation, the only sort of 2 to 4% level I've seen over most of the last one century, century and a half, that may be part of what actually makes money effective. I'm inclined to agree with you, um, but I, I guess the, the sort of people who are worried about the, the very high levels of you know money being injected into the economy at the moment by central banks, and you could argue that the way they're doing it's not efficient, you know, the transmission mechanisms aren't working, but if you just look at the sheer size of the injection, I mean, I can buy, I'm, I'm kind of with you in the sense that for developed countries with who start off with reasonable levels of debt-to-GDP ratio, there's a pretty weak relationship between government debt growth and inflation. It's not kind of a one, the one-to-one correspondence that I guess the Austrian economists would say. And actually, I think there was a nice paper in 2008 from the IMF that basically pointed that out. It said that for developed countries, there's almost no relationship between growth in, in debt and, um, and inflation for this idea that as we had in 2010 with the Conservatives coming in in the UK and saying, oh no, if we even spend a tiny bit too much money, we're basically going to end up like, like Greece. I mean, that was absurd. But there is a point, right? I mean, there, there is a point, and it, it's perhaps more of a problem for emerging markets that already have very high debt levels. There is a point at which trying to print money to kind of spend your way out of trouble will lead to hyperinflation. And I agree that we're probably, we're not at that point yet, but is it fair to say that, that you do think there is a point at which that will be reached? And if so, how will we know? Not with a monetary sovereign. Okay. Not with a country that has a trade surplus. And not with a country that is in the reserve currency of the planet. So that rules out Japan, for example. Japan's current, I mean, the government at level in Japan is over 240% of GDP. The inflation rate is what, negative? Okay. What level are I going to say? 1,000%, 2,000% government? If you have a trade surplus, and if you have your own monetary sovereignty, you're fine. So Japan should be enough to people. You know, I, I, I tend to get colloquial, you know, shut the f up uh, expression for, for people who think that government debt necessarily leads to inflation. If that were true, Japan would have a skyrocketing level of inflation. It's actually barely barely got a pulse on the inflation rate. Now, if you try that with Argentina, you're going to get inflation. The reason being, you've got a huge trade deficit. Nobody trusts your currency. You've got, to, you've got to issue bonds to cover your trade deficit in American dollars. They're going to depreciate as well. You've got to import your inputs as well. You can't provide all the inputs you need. 
you have a collapsing currency and therefore you have runaway inflation because you're buying overseas goods with a, with a, with a falling currency. So the breakdowns really come down to just how effectively are you monetarily sovereign. Now, Japan is monetarily sovereign and China is and Germany is because they run trade surpluses, massive trade surpluses. This, by the way, is one of the points I distinguish myself with MMT. I think their arguments on trade and balance of trade are nonsense, and I've told them that. I don't bother coming out with it strongly because, you know, I think that it's great that a heterodox theory has got the ears of the public in a way that hasn't happened ever since Keynes, so congratulations to them for that front. And they're correct on the monetary stuff. Their trade stuff, I think, is bonkers. And uh, I'll say it now because it stands out how bonkers it is in the year of the, of the coronavirus when America couldn't produce face masks. I mean, I can't, hang on, my supply of face masks is in a box somewhere. I've got about 500 of the buggers. They're made locally in Thailand. And who's exporting face masks to the rest of the world now? China. You know, so the MMT stuff on trade I think is nonsense. But if you, back, back to the issue, you can be able to get away with any level of government debt and any level of government spending if you're monetarily sovereign and you have a trade or you and or you have a trade surplus. Now America is monetarily sovereign because it's the international currency. But it but it doesn't have a trade surplus. No, it's got a trade deficit, but it can finance yeah. it because people want American dollars. I think it should have a balanced trade. I think the whole if you go back to when we were broke from the Bretton Woods Agreement to the floating exchange rate system after after Nixon broke the gold standard, people believe that adjustments in currency prices would eliminate trade deficits. Well, great. How, <laughs> how successful has <laughs> that, that theory been? It worked out so well, yeah. We're, we're five decades into it. I think it's about time I can say that one failed. So <laughs> what we have is huge trade, trade uh, deficits, huge trade surpluses, sustained over time, not corrected by the relative price of currencies, and the problem is the trade deficits and surpluses themselves. And if you go back to Keynes's original ideas for the bank or back in the Bretton Woods before he was scuppered by the American delegation. He wanted a bank core of the international currency for transactions and he wanted limits on trade deficits and surpluses to make sure they rarely exceeded 2% of GDP. Now, we're in a world with 10% of GDP deficits and surpluses and that's a major source of the imbalances that are breaking the system down. But within that, America can get away with it because it's the international reserve currency. If that fails, if we get to the stage where a new currency comes in, and I desperately hope we do ultimately do it, then America will have serious trouble with its trade deficits. Which currency do you think might replace the dollar? I was hoping that the, Jap- the, China, the, Amer- the Russians and the Chinese would get together and form a, a, a currency basket system. I know but the one thing I can say in favour of Donald Trump is he's accelerated discussions by central banks around the world about the need for a potentially a, a basket of currencies, but basically a, ver- a version of SDRs to be used for international trade as well. That would be the best possible outcome of the crisis we're going through. Get away from the Americans being the um, the dominant currency and bring in a, a basket of commodities, a basket of currencies rather, pardon me, something similar to what Keynes had in the, had the idea of the Fabanco in the first place. So so that could easily be a digital currency, do you think, actually, if yeah, it has to be I mean, a basket? I'm in favour of central bank digital currencies for two reasons. One is because that's a potential avenue towards bringing about international currency system, which is not tied to a national currency. The second is that I think we're going to need carbon rationing in the very near future. I don't even read my views on William Nordhaus, but I think that man's work has been a hoax. 
that has fooled economists into believing climate change is far less dangerous than it actually is. Once we realise the hoax he's pulled, we're going to need to bring in carbon rationing. It's far too late for carbon pricing. And central bank digital currencies could be a way of bringing in carbon rationing. So I'd like to see them set up in the first instance that they can use for purposes that are entirely different to what central banks think they should be used for. Steve, I want to come back to the argument that you made, the statement you made is um, inflation encourages people to spend. I guess, you know, that's true. And so therefore you were saying inflation isn't necessarily a bad thing because it, you know, causes money to turn over. Now, uh, we Germans, not me personally, but, you know, my my grand-grandparents, they had their bad experience with inflation, right? So here everybody Mm. is, no, 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 we don't want any inflation. The Bundesbank is very, very tight about it. Mm. So two questions on that. First question is, why do you think is there for most central banks this inflation target of 2% and how the heck did they come up with the 2%? Is that because <laughs> they want to achieve exactly what you said to get people to spend money because they know, yeah, if we're reaching our target, then it's going to be 2% less in a year's time from now. So why that target? And then the second part of my question is, if inflation is kind of like a mainstay of the system, then what would that do to the credit system? You know, all those mortgages, you know, people taking out 30-year mortgages, right? I mean, the bank giving out that mortgage must demand a very, very high interest rate, knowing that, you know, the inflation is part of the system because, you know, 30 years down the track, uh, the money that that bank would be getting back is uh, worth almost nothing. Yeah, I'll take the second part of that question first. If you look at the rate of interest the banks charge, it pretty much is a reserve rate plus the inflation rate or close to it. Uh, plus plus their cost of funds about three percent. So the real rate of inflation tends the rate rate of interest tends to be of the order of two to three percent. You think they 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 buffer the, the rate the nominal rate they charge to cover that inflationary difference. And if you look at periods of high inflation, like you go back to the late seventies, early eighties, when you didn't have high inflation rate, you had high interest rates as well. Now what we've seen since then is that the crushing of that interest, the inflation level and the crushing of interest rates as well. So the real rates haven't changed all that much, but the nominal rates have fallen from 20% to 3 So the private financial sector tends to cope with that by varying the nominal rate of interest that it charges. I can understand the Weimar fear. The element about that, the, you know, what actually should you fear? Well, it's being, what you should fear is being defeated by the French. Um, <laughs> Okay. Because the, the whole intention of the Treaty of Versailles was to cripple Germany permanently. And that's one reason even people who are you know, outright critics of Keynes, I highly recommend they read The Economic Consequences of the Peace, which was his absolutely disgruntled personal reflection on that treaty and the extent to which the French came in there trying to crucify the Germans destroy their long-term enemy once and for all with a tactic that would have worked in a feudal system and Keynes said we'll fail in a capitalist one. Because yeah, and it, and it produced Hitler, right? I mean, and it produced Hitler, yeah, because yeah. he was using the Versailles Treaty after World War One as kind of like rallying his troops. I don't know, worry, Moritz, but you know that there's a French lady in charge of the ECB now, right? I don't know if you know. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, terrible. <laughs> yeah, uh, but, but the, the the real thing that um, that produced Hitler was austerity, because the Weimar, in its own weird way, was a way of you know wiping out the reparation payments. You then had Germany getting caught up in austerity during the 1930s in response to the Great Depression. And Hitler was actually an anti-austerity campaigner. And one of the weird things that happened to me in my 
history of being a, a renegade economist, is somebody out of the blue said, you don't acknowledge your forebears, why don't you acknowledge Henry Ford? What? And they sent me a copy of Henry Ford's um, writings in a thing called the Dearborn Chronicle. Now, I'd suggest you brace yourselves before you read the damn thing because it's actually it's actually Hitler's play script. Henry Ford, he was an anti-Semite, and um, you might have been reading Hitler when you're reading the Dearborn Chronicle, but he also understood the monetary system. And apparently I haven't read, I wonder these days, I do intend reading Mein Kampf, but apparently the only person Hitler acknowledged in Mein Kampf was Henry Ford. Now what you find him seeing is he's saying there's no problem about the government creating money, can do create as much as it likes, et cetera, et cetera. No need for austerity fundamentally, and that's the message that Hitler used to become successful in his campaigning with the German people in the early 1930s. So we often think that it's the Weimar Republic that led to Hitler. It's actually austerity that led to him, and that's what scares me about the current circumstance where without the same level of awareness that Henry Ford had and Hitler required about the capacity for the state to create its own money and and finance its own activities, we're setting up the same sort of right-wing demagogue possibilities with austerity, first of all in the aftermath of the financial crisis and now in the aftermath or in the middle of, in some ways, the coronavirus crisis. Just staying on that, you, you talk about the similarities you see now and, and worry about in from the 30s and all of that. I mean, I can't help trying to bring it back a little bit to, and and I don't know if you're familiar with the, the work of Neil Howe and the fourth turning, that just from a cycle point of view, we are in, in a period where they predict it to be a real, real serious crisis um, because it, it fits with that fourth turning. And that fourth turning always gets resolved in war, real war, hot mm-hmm. war. So I don't know whether you think about that as well in terms of your your work, mm-hmm. um, you know, the possibility of all of this having to go through what we saw 90 years ago, so to speak. Yeah. One of these days I intend writing a little blog post, what's the worst could, that could happen? Because I think the worst will happen. And climate change is by far the major factor I'm thinking about, not the coronavirus was part of it, but certainly climate change is by far the major factor I'm considering. And yes, I think we will face global conflict. In terms of the coronavirus itself, that's going to give us a fractured planet. International travel is out the window unless you live in COVID-free economies. And that's going to be China, Southeast Asia, Australia and New Zealand, by the looks of maybe Norway and a couple other countries in Europe. The rest of the world, you won't be able to travel freely because the capacity to pick up the disease on the way through in planes and stuff like that. So goodbye tourism, goodbye the international airline industry. You're looking at 15 to 20% of GDP that could disappear that way. And then in that situation, if you then have governments imposing austerity in response to it, well, you know, little bloke with a funny moustache becomes a possibility again domestically. But with the global warming impact, the type of breakdown of production systems that is feasible to come out of that and breakdown of food systems, that could lead to conflict between India and Pakistan, for example. Equally could lead to cooperation with India and Pakistan to decide to generate uh, or to, to invest in and produce high-altitude jets that can seed the atmosphere with sulfur dioxide and drive the temperature of the planet down five degrees. And then you might get a rather different response back from the West about that. So a conflict is, I can see a huge amount of human conflict coming our way. If we hadn't overshot the planetary limits 30-something years ago, then we could avoid that 
crisis, but I think we've overshot them so badly and economists have helped us overshoot that, Bjorn Lomborg being the latest jerk who's helping promote their views forward. But in the aftermath of having pulled back our consumption levels on the planet dramatically, perhaps by a factor of two or three, then we're going to be fighting over resources and that just means massive human political contact, uh, con- uh, conflict. Just staying on the, the point about cycles like Neil Howe's work where it's more demographic cycles. I mean, do you have any sympathy for people who say, well, actually from a, and, and again, I don't know much about the climate compared to, to, to you at all, but, but I do hear people who are saying these climate goes in cycles as well. And so what's happening in terms of global warming is part of, you know, I don't know how long these cycles are, but they're probably hundreds of years. Right. And so we are at a point where it's meant to be warm and it will get cooler again. Is there any sympathy in, in, in your work for, for, for general climate cycles that are not really impacted by whether we travel by air or whether we drive too many cars or anything like that? Um, pardon me. Uh, can I share my screen here? Is that possible to share my screen with this? Uh, you can. You can. We, we, sure, you can share it. We don't record screen, so it'll just be the audio. I'm going to give you some correlations instead in that case and see if you want to maintain the same argument. What is actually causing the increase in GDP is increase in energy. We have a high level of GDP because we use more energy. And the correlation between energy consumption and GDP at the global level is point, the correlation coefficient is 0.997. So I think I'm pretty reasonable grounds to say whatever, you know, I can make my causal argument as well, of course, but I'll say correlation, pretty close to one, energy causes GDP. Fair enough. Second one, correlation between GDP and carbon dioxide. What do you reckon, higher or lower than the number I just gave you, correlation between uh, between GDP and energy? I have a feeling it's higher. Yes, 0.998. And then the correlation between... GDP between CO2 and temperature. Want to have a guess at that one? I'm going to stick with higher again. No, you're lucky. It's lower, 0.992. Okay. That's using smooth data. If I used the actual data, which, of course, includes the cyclical factors, it's 0.958. Okay. But if I leave out things like El Nino, which are short-term cycles we know, it's 0.992. Now, pardon me being a bit Germanic and a Hindi, but I'm going to say 999 to your comments. Absolutely no way this is cyclical. Absolutely no way we can say it's something natural variation. We're caught in the middle of it. We are driving this. Now, I've given you three correlations north of 0.99. I don't even need to talk about what causes carbon dioxide, what causes 0.99 times three. So, so the only way to save the world, so to speak, and again, I don't really want to necessarily make this a climate discussion mm-hmm. because I don't yeah. know much about it, but would be to take production off the planet, right? Yeah, fundamentally, that's the only way to, in the long term, and I mean the next 100 years to 200 years, the only way we're going to be able to sustain human society on this planet is to take production off planet. And we are at the verge of that. It's one reason I'm a great right. fan of Elon Musk. I'm even a fan of... Uh, you know, they thank God these billionaires are spending their money on rockets rather than mansions. Mm-hmm. I'm sure the houses are pretty grand as well. But we're getting to the stage where private exploitation of outer space and who cares about waste in outer space? 
it's feasible. But of course, that completely changed the type of income distribution system we have. We can't have an income distribution based on wage labour in that world. So we've got to prepare ourselves for that eventuality. Otherwise, we face the Hunger Games future, in my opinion. But yes, that's the long-term thing. In the short term, if we could pull back on the level of carbon-generated energy, then we might be able to get out of the crisis. But when you're looking at the speed at which we're making that transition, even if we ramp up nuclear massively in the next 10 to 20 years, we're still at the stage where if we're forced to drastically cut back our energy consumption because of the impact on the climate and other impacts of waste as well, then we could see GDP having to be reduced by 50% if we're lucky. So I'm, I'm curious if we can stay on this topic mm-hmm. a little bit, but in a different way, because part of the solution, I mean, yeah, we can talk about taking production mm-hmm. uh, off the planet, mm-hmm. that's fine. But another part of the solution would be to say, well, what if there were fewer people on on the planet in the first place? And so I'm just curious whether this is another kind of test of these things that you hear out there, and that is whether you subscribe to any of these kind of conspiracy theories that actually what's happening with the coronavirus, the way it's set up, it's really controlled or designed by a very small group of people to, at the end of the day, end up in some kind of technocratic environment where they control everything, so to speak. Have you met any of those people? I have. Some of the people the people are fantasizing about the level of conspiracy theory. You'd need to have multi-generation Einsteins to pull off that sort of conspiracy. I've met enough of the people at the top level of this planet that they're not Einsteins. Living deluded theories. I've read. I've read Federal Federal Reserve minutes. Anybody who can spout the garbage I've heard coming out of the Federal Reserve is not going to be able to have a conspiracy to hide to hide ice cream from their children in the fridge. The level of intelligence that implies for a successful conspiracy like that is simply off the scale. I could certainly allow for a potential that there was an accidental release of COVID. Maybe it's something which is biologically engineered by and got out by accident but I think it's more likely it's actually evolved naturally. But in terms of a conspiracy over that sort of stuff, I'm sorry, the people are running the stuff are nowhere near smart enough. They're conspiring all the damn time. Their conspiracies don't work or have unintended consequences that they weren't expecting. No way this is conspiracy-driven. They know as much about the planet as the people who run a place called Teotihuacan. And if you've ever been to Mexico and checked out the pyramids in Teotihuacan and seen the burnt walls of the elites there, when the peasants realised the elite didn't have a damn clue and they were all starving to death, the first thing they did was burn the elites alive. So it's not a conspiracy of guidance, it's a conspiracy of, of stupidity. I mean, Steve, I, I agree with you on a lot of stuff. It's fair to say I agree with you on the amount of money being put into the system, probably not being inflationary. I agree with you on things like basic income, I think, which we haven't even yeah. discussed today. Definitely agree with you on, on the climate. There is one issue, though, which we differ on, and I, I hate to be parochial and, and bring it up, but that is Brexit. <laughs> so uh, uh, I think I think you're on the other side of the fence, um, and I'm sure you have your reasons. But So may, maybe just very briefly, because we haven't got much yeah. time, very briefly, just talk about what, why you, you think Brexit was a good thing for both the UK and the EU, I guess, but also perhaps whether you think it's going well, because I think in this country, most people think that the, the way it's been handled, the outcome's not perhaps looking as rosy as, as we were led to believe uh, when the, the vote happened. I voted for Brexit because I don't like the European Union. I wasn't voting because it would be good or bad for the UK. 
And if I'd known how badly it was going to be stuffed around by the Tories, the whole thing's been a total circus. I would have stayed in bed rather than getting out to vote. So I think it's been a, it's been a catastrophe. And what I, what I hope was it would be a, a wake-up call for Brussels to say, you better change some of your rules, change the Maastricht Treaty, take the screws off the countries that are running deficits, particularly Greece, obviously, and even Italy. I think Italy's probably the country that suffered the most courtesy of the euro. So I saw it as a gentle wake-up call to Brussels. Well, the Brussels bureaucrats have given the Tories a complete runaround. Yanis Varoufakis gave the best advice way, way back in the early days, saying don't even negotiate, uh, put forward a Norway plus deal and simply put it on the table and don't bargain. You'll get the Brussels run around if you try to bargain with them. Well, they've got the Brussels run around for the last, what, three, four years. It's been a total travesty. And seriously, I would not, I wouldn't vote against Brexit because I believe in the European Union. I wouldn't bother voting if I got a chance again because it's been so badly mishandled by the British to begin with. And now you're going to get all the complications of the, the customs checks and so on, which didn't need to happen. If the European Union had been agreeable about it, they could have agreed just to maintain the free trade zone. But they haven't done that, so it's it's been a total catastrophe. If I could see what was going to come with how the Tories mishandled it, I wouldn't have voted for it in the first place. Staying on that topic a little bit, I saw an old... Um interview you did with Hard Talk on BBC, I think probably four or five years ago. I have to say you held up really well. He was pretty hard talking, the guy that interviewed you. But but I, I agree with you in terms of Europe. I'm not a big fan of the EU personally, but I'd like to hear your reasoning. And also, will Europe actually survive? Or the, the EU, I should say, will it survive? And if not, what's going to cause the downfall, do you think? Yeah, I mean, these things last far longer than they ever should. And then they fall apart faster than you expect at some point. I think the euro has been a tragic mistake right from the very outset. If you haven't read it, I recommend finding an article called Maastricht and All That by Wynne Godley in 1992, well before the euro came to existence. But his his reaction in the London Review of Books to why it was a bad idea to have the euro. And the idea was, first of all, you lose capacity to create your own money, which is, leads to all sorts of dilemmas that European economies have suffered with ever since. And then he said, when a crisis comes along, because of these rules, countries which have got an economic downturn are going to make it worse by having to run a government surplus. So he's quite right about it. But the trouble is there's such a level of the euro itself has become part of a symbol of Europe. And people like the fact that they can travel between one country and another and not have to change their bank accounts or their banknotes and so on. So even the Italians, who I've said have said economically suffered more than anybody, because they couldn't readjust their inflation rate to the German inflation rate anymore, and they've been forced into austerity when they should have been doing stimulus. Even the Italians be wedded to it. So it could go on much, much longer. I just would like to see it disappear. I'd like to see a country like Italy say, that's it. All accounts are now in Italian lira. One lira is worth one euro. International debts we're now going to abolish. Uh, we won't pay back the the T3s and all that jazz. We'll... The, the, the target the target balances and so on, we'll just write our debts off and cause a, a crisis that caused the euro to be, to be shut down generally and go back to national currencies. That's what I'd like to see. It's a, it'd be absolute mess in the process, but better than the depressing impact of the euro indefinitely. So it's quite possible we could go in the opposite direction. The euro could realise it's got to provide cash flows 
regardless of what the Maastricht Treaty says and give the money to keep the economies from failing when all the banks start to fail because people can't pay their mortgages anymore in the middle of the coronavirus crisis. And like in that sense, the European, look look at the travesty, how bad the, the, the mismanagement at the Brussels level of the whole crisis over the COVID-19 is another sign of how ineffective this supranational bureaucracy has been. You know, when Italy said it needed help, it didn't get any because the memos went nowhere. So it's it's utterly ineffective and I'd rather, it's only effective is to slow down the speed of responses to crises. And uh, I'd, I'd like to see it disappear, but it could go on for another 10 or 20 years. Sure, sure, sure. Mortz, what's, in terms of last question, we need to be respectful of Steve's time. So is there anything... Yeah, I mean, that, that's been great. I mean, obviously, you know, I, I live in the Eurozone and uh, I deal with that currency on a daily basis. I mean, the, the way I see it, and this may be completely wrong, is we either abolish the thing and we go back to national currencies and give mm. countries the freedom to do whatever they want. That's option A. Option B, we get our sh together and, you know, the only solution there is to have a common fiscal, common tax, mm. common everything type of system, right? Maybe you render, you, you turn in your, your German passport and you get a European passport. It becomes like this one thing, like the United States. And maybe then it will have a chance. But other than that, it's going to be difficult. Yeah. And I think um, the potential was there for that. You know, if you go back 50, 60 years in the early aftermath of the Second World War, you could have had the United States of Europe being formed. The whole intention was to have a continental economy to rival America. Okay, that was the real intention behind it. And I think they've stuffed it politically. They could have done it 50, 60 years ago. Instead, by trying to do it the way they did, and certainly by going to the monetary union first before a fiscal union of any sort, the chances for that, I think, are zero now. In COVID, it's a total wild card. I mean, you're going to have, it's possible, for example, France and Italy might well end up being COVID-free. They, they seem to be trending the right way, maybe Germany as well. But other parts of the European Union aren't going to get there. So you've got a fissure right down the middle of a union. So what I'd prefer to see if we actually do it is go back to national currencies but have the ECB being a seamless international currency conversion system. So when you go from Italy, go from Italy to the Netherlands on your you know, Amsterdam holiday, you turn up with your lira and they get converted into, well, I don't know what the Netherlands currency was called, guilders, I imagine. At zero cost to you and zero inconvenience as well. And that sort of thing, meaning you get the fluency within the one country with the, with the set of, you don't have a national currency, but an international currency, but you have international fluency between national currencies to give you the same overall effect. And then you can run different fiscal policies and different inflation rates and not have the type of destruction of industry that's happened with Italy, courtesy of the euro. But whether that'll happen or not, I mean, COVID has made every potential forecast of the future a total crapshoot. So I won't uh, I won't speculate what's going to happen on that front. Yeah. Sure. I wanted to finish off with a slightly different question for you, Steve. Maybe more of a, a piece of advice we might get from you. The three of us, we are kind of a little bit like you, meaning that you hold some very different views to many of your colleagues. A lot of people look at trend followers a little bit in the same way because we believe that you don't have to make any predictions whatsoever to make money in the markets. You just have to follow the price. So to some extent, we're kind of the black sheep of the family. So I was just wondering if you found a good process for getting people to stop in their preconceived tracks and actually listen to have you 
what you have to say with an open mind and, and obviously ideally being swayed by your arguments. Is there anything you can uh, give us in terms of advice for, for doing that? Well, I think I've been less a victim than I'd like to be because the mainstream economics still dominates everything. So I certainly haven't won the argument. At least I get listened to. I suppose that's the positive here. I think partially it involves working out where your alternative, where you're, the people you're trying to change their minds, what, what is the basis of their thinking? And then saying, okay, I'm going to take that basis and show why that's a fallacy. So that's one reason why I'm working on my Minsky software right now to build models of modern monetary theory to show that the government running a, de a deficit actually gives money to the private sector, not takes it away, which is the mainstream way of thinking. So you've got to find a way to be able to pose the problems that the other way of thinking people have puts for you and then show, well, why this is false. Now, if you people are, if your approach is just follow the prices and, and that sort of thing, then one thing you could be doing is, well, let's take a look at past historical events. How much did they move the markets? And the answer is, well, bugger all. You know, there might be initial reaction, but then that gets washed out over a day. So you've got a strong case for a, for a follow the price signal. On that front, if you haven't seen it, I recommend finding three books by a now deceased author called Bob Hagen. Hagen was a professor of finance who wrote a lot of typical mainstream finance textbooks, but always had strong appendices where the data and the analysis would contradict what was in the body. When he left the academic sector, he made me look like a, um, a wallflower and just blasted the, the mainstream with three books, one called The Inefficient Markets Hypothesis, another called The Beast on Wall Street, and a third one called The New Finance. And in those, he did exactly what I'm talking about. He went and said, just how much does historical data move the market? And the answer was bugger all, major events. The market is a self-referential system. So the sort of thing you people are doing, I think, has got more validity within the market than people who think they can pick macro trends. There are macro issues, which credit, I think, is a major factor there. I'd include credit and credit dynamics in what you analyse. But you know, people looking at the market as being driven by news, forget it, they're wasting their time. News is the stimulus you throw into the pit that then gives you the pit's reactions, which well and truly overwhelm the, the original trigger. Also, look, at it's a long time since I've actually looked in this area, but I always like the work of Jade Gapitas, the fractal markets hypothesis. And he's also done a similar thing about, you know, the extent to which markets are not moved by news but moved by their own internal chaotic dynamics. So, you know, learn how your opponent thinks and try to find ways that they will say X should lead to Y and X leads to A instead. Then you say, well, there's something wrong with the thinking. Yeah, and no, I think that's a great way to end because and although we didn't get to it this time, hopefully there'll be another opportunity and that is your Minsky project, which I think yeah. is about visualization. And that's actually something that I found also in my work and I'm sure Robin Moritz is the same as when you can visualize the impact of what our type of investment strategy does to a portfolio, people really do stop and say, wow, I didn't mm. realize it was that powerful. So for that, Thanks very much. And actually, thank you so much for spending some of your time with us because what we heard today was super interesting. 
And I know that all of our listeners will feel that way. And by the way, make sure you follow, make sure you subscribe, and you support Steve's work via his Patreon account. As you can tell from today's conversation, we are living in a true global macro-driven world, and it is perhaps more important than ever before to stay well-informed. From Rob Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back as we continue our global macro series. In the meantime, be well. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.